Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha today. Joining us, we have Dr. Mark Dixon. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I know you're a very busy man. Would you mind uh, not- for... <laughs> Would you mind for our listeners doing uh, an introduction so that they can get to know a little bit about you? Sure. Um, well, my name is Mark Dixon. I uh, received my bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy from the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee back in the day, and I went to graduate school for my master's and PhD at the University of Nevada, and worked for a couple of years in the Chicago area, missed academia, went back into the professor world um, at Southern Illinois University, and I've been here for almost 20 years now. Almost 20 uh, years. <laughs> almost 20 years, yes. It seems like I'm getting older and older every every day, um, which I guess I am. Um, <laughs> and here at SIU, we have a undergraduate, a master's, and a doctoral program in behavior analysis, um, about 80 active students, so it's a uh, five other colleagues. It's a nice little community. Thank you. Um, it's really wonderful to hear that you have uh, the programs at all different levels, and I didn't realize that about your university. Um, how do people, can you share a little bit about how people or maybe what you know, um, what it's like when they kind of enter at, a, at the undergraduate versus at the master's level? What are their reactions or kind of how did they find or hear about behavior analysis? Well, I think at the undergraduate level, they, they kind of stumble into us by, by accident. Um, you know, we're in a rural area, so it's not like you're going to necessarily come to Carbondale as a vacation destination for, for school. Um, so we end up with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the local high school students that, that might come into the university for for their bachelors, uh, we you know run an autism center on campus here, and it seems to attract you know undergraduates that have an interest in helping people, um, getting some clinical hours to go along with their coursework at the undergrad level, and and uh, they get exposure to us, and I think that results in some interest in our graduate program, and we can bring them up um, through that way. Uh, those other students that might be coming in from out of state typically are at that master's or doctoral level. They know of our program. They might know of one of our faculty and, and are coming here specifically for that, not necessarily for the the rural Illinois um, experience. <laughs> the rural Illinois experience. I like how you how you frame that. Yeah. 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 It's it's interesting because, you know, people will ask me sometimes about, you know, how did you get into a PhD and, and what should I do mm-hmm. now? And it's like, well, those are two separate questions if you're asking what would I recommend now. And I think it's really important that uh, people do kind of find uh, a, a person who has an area of interest that they also share or someone who they've read their research and are real interested in learning from. That is a really powerful way to try to stay motivated during the grueling dissertation process. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Can you so are you active in the in the PhD or doctoral level program and if so any kind of updates or areas of research that your students or the faculty are focusing on? 
Yeah, I mean, I I teach you know, a long, long time ago, many years ago, probably a decade or so. I could have kind of washed my hands of undergraduate teaching, and I, I never wanted to because um, I felt it was important to try to groom those guys into, um, you know, being excited about graduate school and, and, and attracting them to our own program. So I teach one undergraduate, one graduate course every every year. So, I mean, every semester, I should say. And, um, you know, we have students that, you know, even at the undergraduate level are doing research. Um, they're helping data collect, and, you know, some of the more talented ones might, uh, you know, take it upon themselves to, uh, you know, do their own research project with some mentorship from, from me or, or some of the graduate students. But, uh, you know, we, we're a pretty heavy research program here um, at all levels of education um, as opposed to just teaching coursework. And what are some of those areas of research that um, you're kind of seeing currently a focus at, at those levels? And that's a really good point. Sure. Um, I think it's wonderful to emphasize that when you have all three levels, it's possible and, and, and uh, likely that you'll see research occurring at all levels. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the interest of the faculty are pretty diverse. I guess I, since this is an episode about me, I can talk about my work. Um, but I have three really diverse sections of research that don't overlap too much. Um, one of them is a uh, an, an invertebrate laboratory where we have Madagascar hissing cockroaches, and we have a large colony of them and look at basic behavioral processes in the cockroach. Um, it's a great um, subject to have because they do not have a spine. Um, they're considered invertebrates. It makes up most of the animal kingdom. We've done very little research um, in behavior analysis with invertebrates. Um, they're very inexpensive to house. It's a uh, uh, an organism that the students get, they're kind of polarized about working with. Either uh, they think it's really cool or they're really scared of these gigantic roaches. Um, and so we do work with them. Um, I also have a casino on campus, um, probably the only one of the only universities that has its own casino. It's not that exciting. It's not like Las Vegas, but we have, um, you know, multiple slot machines, roulette table, blackjack table, and have people come in and we gamble, um, you know, various things, either they're gambling for your money prizes or gift cards or extra credit values. Uh, had a relationship with a hospital here in town where we can have them gamble while they're in an MRI machine and look at neurological, you know, markers of, of gambling. So that's the second area. And then the third area of work that I do is in um, complex language and cognition processes for persons with autism. So typically those three areas of work don't overlap, but sometimes the students involved do. Um, they get excited about seeing the entire span of what behavior analysis can can um, accomplish from those little cockroach critters all the way up to um, you know a high schooler with autism that's struggling socially, emotionally in a classroom. I think the diversity gets people excited. It keeps me um, happy to go to work, and I think it uh, teaches these students to be a well-rounded behavior analyst. 
I think having multiple exemplars, right, is a known way to program for generalization yeah. and programming common stimuli, all of it. And it's really neat to hear about such diverse uh, areas of interest that all have behavior analysis in common. The science is in common there. Um, when I was pursuing my program, there was uh, Terry Bright did her master's and her doctoral program with me, and she was working at the Boston MSPCA. And so we were always talking about, you know, applied animal work. And um, my first week in the program, I was selected for jury duty. So we were, uh, I could only talk about certain things. So I got to learn about operational definitions of guilt and innocence and embarrassment. Um, so I was pushed, I think, to have those, ex to expand and consider these applications in diverse areas. And it's really cool to hear about your work and a program that's, that's encouraging that for students. Um, can you talk more about your area of interest with complex language um, and the development of that for individuals, you said primarily with autism, and uh, I think it's a great lead-in into the research and the work that you're doing with your PEAK curriculum. Sure, sure. I mean, when I started here at SAU, um, I didn't have three of those areas. I came in and, and built the casino first, and that was good enough for me for quite a while, and through a variety of circumstances uh, that kind of arose with the you know increasing prevalence of autism and and demand for services. There were a number of local agencies that were reaching out uh, to the university, hoping that the behavior analytic wing could provide some input and support for the students and clients that they were seeing that had this disability. And so I. You know, as a guy who really likes the field and, and likes the challenge and likes the diversity that, that I think we can we can bring the world, I stepped in and, and said I'd be happy to kind of add this onto my daily activities and, and try working and, and, and helping out your staff with, with these kids. And most of these kids initially it was challenging behavior and and then we started to see you know, some of the limitations that they had with, with language as well. And I, you know, utilized the tools that were available at that time, and, and they worked through great. But, you know, with my history of being involved with more of this complex language, stimulus equivalence-derived relational responding RFP that I was doing in the casino, I started to, you know, play a little bit with the possibility that, that type of those types of techniques could be incorporated uh, on the front line for these children with autism that that I was seeing every day. And through some you know many years of just sketching out ideas and you know could we train a three three member class um, not only to the child but could we get that frontline staff that you know one on one aid to understand you know, you know Sidman's equivalence paradigm, um, would it be possible? Could that could that work? Would there be any added utility to, you know, training only a subset of relations and hoping to get the emergence of others? Um, what would be the staff reaction to this? Would it be too complicated? Could we take all the theory out and just put the mechanics in place of, you know, these trials do this, these other trials do something different? Um, and, you know, after honing that technique for a number of years, uh, I started to release the, uh, you know, over 
2014, the first of, of four books. I made up the Pete Craig one. And um, I've been pretty, you know, humbled by the success that it's had and and often, you know, also cautious about the success that it's had. And it's been, it's been really nice to see the outcomes for the kids that we've worked with on the curriculum as well. Outcomes, I think, are ultimate measure of change, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it yeah. takes a while, you know, to achieve, and so we look for those smaller indicators, right? Like, is somebody um, having better fidelity with implementation? And then we look at, you know, kind of now can they implement the plan? Is somebody making progress? So, it, you know, I, there's um, a lot to be said and a lot to be learned about the PEAT curriculum. I myself um, have access to the books um, but haven't taken a course and feel like as there's um, always more to be learned about humans and animals as well in the animal kingdom, um, it's exciting to me that we are in a field that we have the ability to to study human behavior and to grow and to change and to um, expand the way that we think and conceptualize the applications of our science. And so um, obviously the curriculum is uh, behavior analytic in nature, but you also mentioned some technical words and terms. And I just want to circle back to them real quick for people who, because we might have a diverse audience here. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I actually haven't polled my audience. I'll have to ask them one day, who are you? Um, stimulus equivalence, derived relations, and then you said RFT. Can you just speak to kind of what that means in everyday terms for everyone as, yeah. as much as you can? Sure, <laughs> sure I can do that. Um, those those processes all kind of fall under the umbrella of inferential learning, and that type of learning is oftentimes I think you know, hoped for when we do interventions, but not necessarily um, you know programmed for at a with, with precision. And so these phenomena, or these I guess um, abilities, and the techniques that would be used to hopefully get to that um, have been around in behavior analysis for about the last 50 years, and we've seen a lot of work on these principles and procedures in the experimental literature, maybe in some of the applied literature, but really haven't seen that type of, um, you know, any type of, of considerable activity at, at that frontline clinician level. And, and, you know, specifically what this is would be something like this. If I was to tell you that, you know, um, the vocalization cat, um, you know, is the same as and then had you pick from an array of pictures of a cat, a dog, and a pig. Um, and then I was to train you that the vocalization cat is the same as and then maybe there's three textual stimuli on the table, the text, V-A-T, the, the, and then the other two words uh, spelled out in letters as well. And, you know, through trial and error, you'll be able to select, you know, in the presence of the vocalization, which picture to select, in the presence of the vocalization, which um, text to select. So the, the magic, and I don't really mean that literally, but that, the, that inferential ability is when now in the presence of the picture, um, you, without any history, without any direct training, without, you know, any prompting or, or reinforcement history, you're able to select in the presence of that picture which is the text that is correct and vice versa in the presence of the text which of those pictures is correct. So this 
you know, uh, inductive learning is kind of exciting. It's something that only occurs in humans, and it only occurs in humans after the age of about 18 to 24 months of chronological age. So there's something rather um, exciting about this. It, it seems to be a relatively, you know, human-only process. And what I, I guess, was excited about was the potential that this could have to overcome some of the, uh, you know, criticisms that we've heard, not within our field, but outside of our field, about behavior analysis and working with children with autism. You know, we, we teach them to be robots. They learn how to memorize things and they, they don't understand things. And, I, you know, I don't think any behavior analyst believes those, those statements, but, you know, could we do more to maybe minimize even the appearance that, even if it's inaccurate, but the appearance of that is, is happening. And so one of the, I think, ways that it could be done would be if we were to be able to demonstrate, you know, repeatedly that we can get kids to learn things that we haven't really taught them. That it wasn't just generalization, but it was actually problem solving. It was induction. It was it was um, making sense of the world around based on prior experiences um, when they encounter novel events, in this case, novel stimuli configurations. And so, you know, over the 50 years, we've seen work on this from very basic paradigms, like what I just described, which you can see clear relevance for a young child with autism. It's um, just a learning language, all the way to more uh, extremely complex cases where um, we might be trying to build the foundations of um, perspective taking and empathy and social awareness and caring about others and how even that type of paradigm and that, that inferential ability um, may be at the core of some of these bigger social emotional um, you know, behaviors and, and the ways of, of being that we typically have been um, you know, accused of not being able to maybe impact as well as we should in behavior analysis. And I think we can. And I believe this is the way to do it. It's really exciting for me to hear about, you know, conceptualizations, applications to populations that are um, not just those diagnosed with autism. And, of course, it could be individuals in casinos. We know there can be broad applications uh, of the, you know, analysis of mm -hmm. behavior. But when we are talking about it with different populations or even different areas of needs and skill sets within the population that we may not have yet maximized what our science can do, um, I, I think that that's real exciting. So um, thanks for, for sharing with us kind of and explaining a little bit more about stimulus equivalence. And I think, sure. you know, quickly to summarize, it's, um, uh, you know, learning or demonstrating skills other than what was explicitly taught and not just mm -hmm. in places other than where it was explicitly taught. So it's that extension of probably how um, maybe someone who's a lay person might, might think of generalization. It's like, yes, I want it to occur with new people, new places over time, but this mm -hmm. is more of that conceptualization of problem solving, right? Yeah. You can, yeah, you can I kind of so. make those inferences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, we're, you know, what I describe as a pretty clear, or I think, uh, basic example of stimulus equivalence, but, you know, the, the where this, you know, derived relation responding, or what we talked about as relational frame theory, what it adds to the conversation is that um, when those relations are occurring, that 
um, they're not necessarily all equal with each other. So if the vocalization um, cat is matched to an identity, you know, a picture of a cat, but then the vocalization cat, we could also have it matched to anything other than a cat. Um, you know, how do you, you know, now start problem solving when things weren't, you know, the game to solve is not equalness, but rather of one is the same as, you know, this other, but this other is is different from the first one. Now what do you do? Or if the, uh, the opposite of an opposite is the same, or if one is greater than the other and the third is greater than that, which one is smaller? So so what RFT, you know, essentially adds is just, I think, more complexity to the ways in which things can be related together and then those problems are solved. You mentioned um, Sedman, Mary Sedman. Um, mm -hmm. What other uh, behavior analysts or researchers do you um, kind of go back to or think about or are building upon um, when you're when we're kind of moving in this direction and and where would somebody learn more about RFT or relational frame theory? Sure, um, I think yeah, I can list a long you know a long um, number of names here, but. You know, some of the more prominent folks, and I apologize in advance for missing anybody, would be Steve Hayes, um, Dermot Barnes-Holmes, Yvonne Barnes-Holmes, um, Michael Dewar, um, you know, the list goes on and on, Brian Roach, um, Ian Stewart, Surrey Ming, a lot of different folks. I think that at, at this point, the, the work has developed enough that you know, you could just search in the pages of Job or JAB or Psych Record and, and find these these characters, um, myself included. I like how you characterize yourself as a character. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can try to, you know, kind of get a list of some of those names, and it's not, of course, mm -hmm. going to be all-inclusive, but for me, I'm always interested, like, in who inspired you and who inspired this and how did those connections get made? So it's awesome to have even just a beginning running list of, of who that might be. Um, also with regard to the work that you're doing, um, you have, do you have, you know, a website information, um, places where people can access you? I know there's a lot of trainings. I, I see you as a big contributor to the dissemination um, of science, you know, you were just in Hawaii, and then you were in, I think, New Jersey, and uh, I don't know where you're headed next. But um, tomorrow it's St. Louis, so yeah, it's, it's been a long, <laughs> it's been a long week. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, I guess it depends on the depth of, of what you want to, you know, learn. Like, you know, my, you know, research findings are, you know, you can find them all in Google Scholar. It's just typing in my name. Um, the kind of those trainings on how do you do this peak curriculum or, you know, the you know, some of the work that we do with acceptance and commitment therapy. There's, you know, a website for that, um, peak, P-E-A-K, two, the number two, and then ABA.com. Um, that, that's kind of a clearinghouse for um, what the system is, the, the research summaries, the training schedule, um, there's a Facebook page, a YouTube channel, an Instagram page. So there's a lot of that uh, social media available for people that are maybe not wanting to read the technical journal articles but are curious as to how this type of approach might um, be beneficial to learn about it or 
as a um, professional or you know, how it might benefit a student in their classroom or maybe their own child. Thank you. Um, lots of social media access there. So, yeah, Facebook, YouTube, mm. uh, Instagram, um, things like mm. that. So what, just a, maybe a final question or two, if you still have a few moments. Um, sure. What level of understanding does a person need or should, I guess, let me think of it this way. If um, the if we were going to be kind of using this curriculum or protocol or assessment, um, who needs to be on that team or who, who kind of do you recommend would lead the group? Um, what's the role of the teacher? How, how much, um, where do people start? I know that you said there's multiple books, but like, like what kind of is the foundation? Yeah, like where do you, where do you get started and who should be doing what? Um, yeah, what's step one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, when I, when I really read these books, let me, let, let me put a little history in place and then I'll, I'll get to your comment. Is I, I put these books out and um, really didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you know, I thought I we were on something pretty exciting. Um, you know, we had published a few papers. You know, there's more that kept cascading, you know, into the journals, and it, it was pretty exciting. And with that growth and I think awareness, um, you know, we started to see some things happen that that were unplanned. Um, for example, um, you know, I'd get on the internet and just Google. Not myself, but I Google peek to see, you know, if the people were talking about it or if some of the articles were, you know, getting uh, any attention and found people that were doing peak trainings that uh, I had never even heard of um, and that, you know, had purchased the book and decided they were going to go and uh, train some folks. And, you know, I think that's flattering at one point, you know, one level, but it's also a little bit um, – concerning at another because of the fact that, you know, what is the quality control and, um, you know, would people be getting the same from them as they would if, if I was to train them or somebody that worked very closely with me and should I care? Um, you know, isn't it the best measure of success that other people want to replicate what you do? And, and so I was kind of torn with this issue for a while. And then I started to receive some emails of people complaining about, the quality of the training that they had and and that they were seemed to be mad at me about it um, when, you know, I really had nothing to do with it to begin with. And so that resulted in um, kind of the unexpected creation of a, of a training entity and a certification program that um, kind of operates, I mean, it, it essentially operates independent of me. It's run by uh, Dr. Megan Miller, um, and she, you know, constructed a certification program um, for PEAK and, and manages trainings um, at a global level. Um, and, and that is a system by which, uh, you know, attendance at a multi-day workshop is one level of certification. And then a second level of certification is when you're actually demonstrating the skills of both the assessment and the intervention elements of PEAK and getting feedback, you know, from the trainer. And in those moments, you're, you're uh, summarizing data, generating assessment reports, and so on. So that, I mean, those things are, are available. Um, they're not, you know, I mean, we can't require anybody to do that. But I, I think it's allowed for a little bit more kind of wrangling in of, of those, um, 
you know, kind of unauthorized trainings. And not that I want to police those things at all, but it, it was more to make sure that, you know, if people are going to spend money on a training or they were, they, they're committed to learning this thing or, or they believe in the, the ideas that, you know, make up derived relational responding and, and the potential benefits they could have, that they were at least getting trained um, from people that knew how to train the content of the curriculum. Um, when it comes to who can use it, who should use it, all those things, who should show up at a workshop, you know, we've kept that, that open. You know, there are some parameters around, you know, you have to attend the whole time, you have to demonstrate these skills, you have to have, you know, a certain level of education. Um, but I think that, you know, while we can set those things up as recommendations, the, the truth is that you have to follow the rules and the laws of, of where you where you operate. And I guess as I've traveled over around the globe um, doing these workshops and uh, also, you know, the exponential additional number of ones that Megan and, and other people have done under this training umbrella, um, we've, we've encountered some surprising things, like in certain um, locations, you, you can't do a behavioral assessment um, unless a, a licensed psychologist signs off on it, or, you know, in certain places in the world, you're only able to um, work with children with autism under a certain age or um, certain level of disability. Um, so I guess my my long-winded answer in summary to you is who can do this? I think that, you know, we've, we've put in place some guidelines. It should be people that have had some sufficient training from people that know what they're training. Um, but that's a, a recommendation. I think the final word on this is what your um, local, state, national um, bodies that govern your practice um, dictate. Those are the ones that I think you need to pay attention to even more than our certification. Thank you. I think that long-winded answer was just fine, but in summary, <laughs> yeah. it sounded like, you know, there needs to be, I think, with any anything like a any behavioral program, uh, mm -hmm. implementation. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not policing so much as maybe protecting what you're. I think you know, um, right. contributing and bringing and saying this is the this will have this level of quality if you attend this training. And so, I think that's sure. helpful. Um, and it's also, I think, um, a, you know, really important that we want people to learn about our science. I mean, we don't want it to be so. That's not, I don't think, your mission nor mine. Um, so, of course, it's good to have as sort of many stakeholders and participants as possible, I think. Um, yeah. And then that connection, that connection to just being educated and knowing locally what's going on. It's, it's easy to put our heads in the sand. Believe me, I like to do it all the time and try to ignore what's happening. Um, but um, when we think globally, like um, I know you and I had talked about our trips different places, and having gone to the Philippines, right? I was like, wow, people are sometimes hearing about derived relations before they've heard about uh, what's a stimuli. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And yeah. then how do, we, how do we then translate that, not just across language and cultures, but from people who are, you know, kind of sometimes jumping in in the deep end. And I'm like, um, and their the motivation and the energy is there. And so it's really cool, again, I think, to be reaching as many people as possible having those connections and then making sure there's some quality protection. But Sure. Uh, I, I mean, the last thing I want to have happen is people say, well, I tried this thing and it didn't work. And then it's, you know, 
that that damage is already done, you know, when you and you have to try to backpedal and say, well, were you certified? Did you, who was your trainer? What happened? Uh, did you do X, Y, and Z? You know, I'd rather try to take care of that on the front end than have the complaints afterwards. Um, that it just, you know, these things don't work. And you know, to me, it's it's not a matter of if these things work or not. Um, it's more of a matter of, you know, were you competent enough in your um, delivery of it? To determine, um, you know, was it really you, or was it was it really the actual protocols? Spoken like a true behavior analyst. Antecedent modifications and doing things on the front end, I think, are always better. I say yeah. the best way to respond to behavior is to prevent it from occurring. Um, <laughs> if there's one that we're looking to not see occur, if there's one we want to mm-hmm. increase, then of course that that won't apply. I want to thank you again for, for, you know, taking the time for joining us today and um, just want to make sure I give you an opportunity. Is there anything, any last parting words of advice or anything you wanted to add in today? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I've had a good time. I think that, uh, you know, hopefully the listeners can, you know, walk away from this episode with, you know, an appreciation for how broad behavior analysis really is, you know, whether it be my career or, you know, others of us, you know, we, we do a lot uh, of diverse things to try to make, um, you know, this world a better place. And, and you know, science constantly evolves and we need to continue to evolve with it. And I feel that that next generation of behavior analysts should continue to push for even a more complex and wide-reaching science than I've been able to do. The next generation to come. Dun, dun, dun. Challenge <laughs> is given. Is. We'll see who accepts it. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about PEAK, we can get you again that website, which is peaktoaba.com. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis and the diverse applications, you can get information at www.behaviorbabe.com. 